All right, so if you have a Bible, I want you to join with us. Uh, we have been, we're in week three of a study through the book of Ruth. Ruth is a, a short book of the Bible. It's only four chapters, uh, and it is an incredible love story. It's a remarkable story. I mean, Hollywood definitely, I mean, there probably has been one done on it. I'm sure somebody's done a film on it. The story of Ruth and Naomi, and then you have this guy that we're going to meet today in our study named Boaz. But this all has all the elements of a great love story, a great uh, novel, a great story of uh, redemption. And we're going to talk about a little bit more. We're going to see that theme over the next few weeks uh, of redemption and a redeemer. Um, But this story is filled with, because it has tragedy. It has some deep, dark tragedy. It has unbelievable amount of pain and suffering, but yet through that conflict of the pain and the suffering and and even the depression and the bitterness of Ruth, all of a sudden we started to see, even last week, there's a little glimmer of hope. It has all these amazing elements right within it. And we're going to look, and I want to give you a quick, just a really quick recap, because I know some people are, uh, you know, may have been here last week or may have missed the first week or may have not been here the first couple weeks, and then now you're kind of trying to catch up in the story. But just a, a quick review of this book. It is, it is, a, it is a, this incredible love story, but it's a picture, ultimately, of God. It is always, Scripture is Christ-exalting. We see Christ throughout Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament. And we're going to see that more and more as we dig further into this book. But this book starts out, if you have a Bible there, Ruth chapter 1 uh, is where we'll first start in our, in our Bibles here. Uh, we see and we find quickly what's happening here. First, they, this this. This book and this incredible story happens all within a time period of the Judges. Now, if you've read the book of Judges, many of us, you know, we start out so well and uh, we get through most of Genesis in a Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year, and then we quickly tail off. And so a lot of times we just never make it to some of these incredible books. But to be honest, the book of Judges is a dark book. It's one that we see some, some really cool Bible stories for our kids, you know, Gideon, Samson, um, Deborah, and some of these other, I mean, infamous characters and them coming on strong during a time of uh, darkness in, in Israel's history. This was a, a period in history before the kings. And so what would happen was God had said in Joshua, hey, listen, if you, I will go before you. I'm going to send you into the promised land, but you're to follow my law. You're to, uh, I'm to be your one true God. You're not to worship other gods. When you veer, here's the, here's the conflict. Here's what's going to happen. Famine is likely to happen. Uh, barrenness, the lack of being able to have children. You'll be defeated in war. All these things happen. And this story falls in the period of the judges. And actually we find out right in the opening verses that there is famine in the land. And it's during this time that we know. And so that famine is, is from the Lord. It's awakening, the, it should be awakening the people to live a life of repentance, to repent of their sins, return back to God, and God will bless them. He'll bring rain on their lands. He'll give them children. He'll give them victory in battle if they'll just entrust themselves to the Lord and put their faith in Him, in Him alone. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't put their trust in Jesus. They wouldn't put their hope in God. And so what would they do? They would wander off, and they wouldn't repent of their sins. And so here we find a family, this one family that we see in the book of Ruth is this family with a man named Elimelech, and he takes his family to, of all places, the place of Moab. 
And in Moab is where he goes, and he lands and he takes his family to Moab. And he has his two sons and his wife, and they go to Moab. And when they get there, naturally, they're going to eventually marry. And sure enough, these two sons marry Moabite women. These, the, you have to understand Moab. I mean, this was, God had put a, really ultimately a ban on the people of Moab because of their sin. They were pulling the Israelites into sexual sin. Their women were enticing the Israelite men. They were oppressive, awful, and then pulling them to worship their god, Chemosh. And here is what exactly happens. So when Elimelech should be repenting of his sin, calling the rest of his people to live a life of repentance, put their trust in God, he takes his family to find bread and land and produce in another land, the land of Moab. And sure enough, tragedy strikes while they're in Moab. Elimelech dies. His two sons die. And all that we see left is Naomi, this now older woman, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And in this story, we see all of a sudden they have no hope. Because again, in, in ancient Near East, culture. I mean, there wasn't much for a widow, but God had put some things, we're going to look at that in a second, God had put some things in place to provide for these people, but ultimately, I mean, they were, they, there's no child, there's no, their family was everything, it meant everything, it was status, and it was also security, and it was a way to live and provide, and now it's just Naomi and then her two daughters-in-law who are, who are Moabite women, foreigners, but then there's a little glimmer of hope in verse 6, and in verse 6 we hear that there's that the Lord has visited his people again in Bethlehem. And so they heard that there's food there. And so sure enough, she's like, okay, I'm gonna take my, I'm gonna go back. She tries to convince Ruth and Orpah not to bring, uh, to, to go with her. There's nothing for you here. There's nothing. I mean, l- l- there's nothing for you. You're a Moabite. We're gonna come back with me. All you're, all you're gonna be is, and, he, and she's trying to convince them because she's like, listen, the Lord has stricken me. God is judging me or something. She doesn't understand it, what's really going on, and she does, definitely doesn't see the big picture yet. But God has a big, a big plan in place, but she doesn't see it, and all she sees is the Lord has stricken me, and God is against me. She's like, if you come with me, God's gonna be against you too. She tried to convince them to not go with her. And Orpah eventually said, okay, I guess I'll go. As much weeping, she leaves. But Ruth says, and the Bible tells us she clings to her. She clings on to Naomi and says, no, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay, I'm going to stay. I mean, this amazing statement in Scripture, this amazing statement of commitment and, and saying, I want to be with you. I will go wherever you go. She's turning her back on the gods of Moab and saying, I will go after your God, the one true God, Yahweh. She's like, he will be my God, and I want to go wherever you go. I'm going to die wherever you die. I wanna, I'm going to rest wherever you rest. Naomi doesn't say much to it, and they begin their journey. And they come, and this is where we left off last week. They come right at the beginning of the harvest in Bethlehem. And this is where we pick up uh, our incredible story. And so I want you to grab your Bible. Ruth chapter 2 is where we are. So now they've landed in Bethlehem. Um, Naomi is so depressed, naturally, we would think, and she's lost her husband and her two sons. She's depressed, she's wondering, and she feels like there's no hope in her life. She seems hopeless, she sees there's no future in front of me because I have no kids, I have no family, there's nothing for me, there's no future, there's no hope. She feels hopeless. And here they land, and she says, when they, they, they said, hey, isn't that Naomi? She said, no, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because it means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I mean, she's at the lowest of lows. 
and you can't help but sympathize with her. You can't imagine what she's gone through. And so now it comes to harvest, and so it begins in chapter 2, verse 1. And so here it says, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So the author gives a bit of information to the audience that is unknown yet still to Ruth and Naomi. They don't know this yet. They've just arrived in Bethlehem. They have no idea about who this Boaz guy is yet. They've just landed there. The author has already given you a little bit of a foretaste of like what's to come. And so in verse 2, it says this, and Ruth the Moabite, and it's going to say this over and over again. We see this, Ruth the Moabite. It's a reminder of she's an outsider. She's not supposed to belong. And so Ruth the Moabite, here in verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, so Naomi responds, says, go, my daughter. And so for us, you know, we're not farmers. I don't know if any of you are a farmer, unless you're like holding out on me, and I had no idea that you're a a farmer or something, but I don't think any of us that I know of yet are farmers. Maybe you have a little garden. I'm the worst. I can't even keep a garden, so definitely don't make me a farmer, Lord willing. So if if like something bad happens, all of a sudden, like uh, like there's like the economy crashes, I'm gonna have to somehow figure out how to use a hoe and and start start planting them and then start liking tomatoes. I don't know how many of you like tomatoes. I don't I don't love them, but my, my kids will eat them, I guess. So they'll start, they'll live. I just might not. Um, but I don't know, so they're, they're farmers. And so for us, we don't get this culture. I mean, this was their livelihood. This meant everything. So when a famine came, literally, that's why it could cripple them. It could cripple. I mean, it can cripple the economy even today, but not, unlike, not like it did back then. This was everything. This was your status. This was your wealth was in your land, your property. And here they have this, and this, so there's, there's these people, they would own lots of land, and so it was a patriarchal system in a, a society, and so in that society, there was these big families, and there was these wealthy families who owned a lot of land, and so they would provide the security and the resources for the people, jobs and opportunities, and so what they would do during this time, it was usually about April, uh, would have been the time of harvest in, in Israel and in Bethlehem specifically, they would have these harvesters, and they would go out in the field, and they would go among, and they would gather all of the grain and the wheat and the barley and those things, and so they would gather it all. But here, what she's asking to do is to glean. Glean was different. Glean was something that actually God had instituted. This is really remarkable, and I wanna, we're going to trace this a little bit in Scripture in just a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> but in this culture, I mean, they needed this, and so here's this land but then what they would do when they would go to, to harvest a land, so say there's this plot of land, say the size of this room. There's this, this room size and it's just full of, of barley all over. I mean, all this all these grain, all this stuff. And so they would run, go through the field and they would gather all of this. But what they were to do was to only gather inside of an area. So they would leave like the outside area of their fields. They wouldn't touch that area. God had given them instructions to leave those areas for specifically widows, the poor, and the foreigner. As the sojourner comes, they were to be able so they could actually have food. So God would say, you, you only take inside of an area and you leave the outside for others and the poor. Or if like you've gone through that field and there's a few little sticking up here and there, they could go and gra- gather those as well. And so Ruth is saying to Naomi, hey, I'm going to go and try to find favor. Maybe there'll be a landowner who's going to give me favor because it wasn't a guarantee. Remember, this is in the book of Judges. This is during the time period of Judges. I mean, people weren't just godly and loved the Lord and just generous. 
Uh, everyone is kind of out for themselves, and especially during a famine, potentially. And like, they're just come out of a famine, like, no, you can't have this field. And so she's hoping to just find favor. And God had given all of these things. And I want you to, I want you to hear this. This is for one. I just want to quote a few, a few verses of scripture for you to see God's heart for people. Because God had instituted ways for these people. Listen, in Deuteronomy 10, 18, it says, He, talking about God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. In Leviticus 23, 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges, what I was just explaining, of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Listen to Exodus 23, 11. It says this, during the seventh year, think about this, during the seventh year, the land, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor, notice this, then the poor among your people may get food from it and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive groves. So every seven years, don't even touch it. Leave it for the poor. Like all of it, every bit of your land for the poor to be able to find food. In Psalm 12, 5, it says this, because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, this is God speaking, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And then if you go to the the New Testament in James chapter 2, here's the warning for us. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed. So you come across someone who is in need and you're like, hey man, God bless you, good luck. And you walk away. He's saying, what good does that do to that person if you don't give them a shirt off your back or give them a food or gas card or something? Why, what, what, what does it mean if you're just going to walk by and leave them alone? He's like, what kind of fate? Ultimately, what James is saying is, what kind of fate is that that isn't practical, that doesn't meet the needs of others? You see, God cares deeply about the marginalized and the poor. And so here, Ruth is hoping for an opportunity to glean the outskirts of the field and what may be left behind so that she and Ruth, uh, or, and her and Naomi can eat. And so look at verse 3. The story continues. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I just want to stop there for a second. The way this reads in the Hebrew is, is so fascinating. The way this reads in the Hebrew, that, that part of she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The way that that word happened that we have in our English translation there is her chance chanced, is the way it would read in the Hebrew. Her chance chanced, meaning like in our, in our English, our idiom today, it would be like as luck would have it, she ended up on Boaz's field. Now, the author is not saying, and he's not saying he believes in luck. We know this in Scripture. Scripture says even the, 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 the rolling of dice, the Lord is in control of. Like, you're rolling sixes, the Lord allowed you to roll sixes. You know, like, ultimately the way of casting lots and those things, as you see in the Old Testament. Over and over again, we see that this author is using devices in his speech and in his storytelling to grab the attention of his audience, to say, as outrageous as this seems, as luck would have it, she just happened to land on Boaz's field. And what he's emphasizing, this author is emphasizing, is no, it was not happenstance. You know, in China, um, so some of you know this, some of you don't, but in China, uh, they love the word luck. 
Uh, they, love, they love to talk about luck. Red is a lucky color. That's why you see a lot of red from the Chinese. And so when we were in China to adopt our daughter, um, our, our interpreter and different ones, they would say, oh, your, your daughter, is, she's so, she's so uh, lucky. They would say that to us. Oh, she's so lucky to have you American to, uh, to uh, adopt her. And I would just look at him like, are you kidding me? What kind of luck is there in being born and abandoned at five days old and left in an orphanage for three and a half years? That's not luck. And ultimately, though, what I would say from that perspective as I step back is as tragic as I say, man, her childhood was. To think to not have someone love you and to hold you and to care for you and to feed you when you're, when you're hungry and to, and, to ca- and to just hold you and cuddle you when, you when you need warmth, but just to leave you in a crib. Like, I can't imagine what that's like. But ultimately, God had a plan. God had a plan to have her in our home so that one day when we showed up, it wasn't just luck that showed up that we happened to be fall on her. There's a thousand different steps that happened to leading us to her. Ultimately, it started with, and it can go back all the way to, I mean, you can just, literally, you can just keep going down the family tree. My dad loves genealogy, like, too much, probably. <laughs> he loves it, man. He's like, he's got the subscription and all that kind of stuff. I hope my dad is probably going to listen to this podcast. I love you, dad. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but he, so he, lo- he loves it. So we could really go trace it all the way back. We'll go, just keep going with my family line. But let's just go back to even me, meet, me meeting my wife, Amanda. I loved baseball. I grew up in a, in a Christian home, but again, I, th- I think I've said this before. Again, love you, Dad. Uh, like, my parents were never pushy on where I should go to school. It was like, if I go to school, I go to school. If I don't, I don't. It was never, I never felt the pressure of, of anything. I never felt expectation, but I, I, God got a hold of my heart. I felt led to, um, to go into ministry, but before that, I just wanted to play baseball until they told me I couldn't play anymore. And so I loved it. And so I played baseball through high school and football, but baseball was better at than football. It was a little small for football. And, uh, but, and so I ended up, felt God's call in my life like I was in ministry, so I said, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go and try to pursue going to ECU and some of the North Carolina uh, universities that I was trying to get into and hopefully get a scholarship to play. So I, I gave that up, and I said, okay, I'm going to go to this Bible school. So I ended up at this Bible school uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina area. That didn't have a school, it didn't have a baseball team, didn't have any, uh, it just wanted intramural sports, no intercollegiate sports. And as I was there, um, there was some things that I didn't love in the Bible program. I wasn't in agreement with and the, the theology and stuff like that. I'd made some poor choices even ending up there because of friends. And I ended up there, again, just happened to end up at this school, but didn't feel like it was the right place. And so God had kind of opened up a door for me to go to Clearwater Christian College in Florida uh, and they, had, they happened to have a baseball team. And so I ended up trying out for the team, made their team, ended up going there. I drove there. My fr- I, I'd never visited that school, nothing. Some of you have heard that story. My parents didn't go with me. I just got in my 66 Mustang, and I just drove down. Did it in two days. I was scared I'd overheat the engine. And so I drove down, pulled into Clearwater Christian College's campus first day. Didn't know where I was. No one, I'd never seen this place before in my life. I go in, sign in, all these things. So I go through high school, through the college years. My senior year, uh, I loved football. Remember, I played football, and so I was still playing. I was playing baseball through those years. In the fall, some group was randomly going to play football that day. And I'm like, I love football. I'm going to play football today. And so sure enough, it was, uh, it was guys and girls kind of mixed in playing. And of course, they played tackle football. And you're like, what is going on here with guys and girls playing tackle football? But anyways, I'm like, sure, let's do it. I love football. So we go, and Amanda happens to be on the other team. I don't know who she is from Adam, nothing, never met her before. 
she asked to, to rush after me, and I'm like, okay, bring it, right? Like, you cannot catch this guy. I am too fast for you, but I will let you chase me. That sounds fun. So, so, so she rushes, and I'm like, I give her a little pump fake, you know, she does something, and then I start running, and I keep running, and then I try to make a few moves or whatever, and then this one guy, remember, it's tackle football, and we're not wearing pads, and I play baseball, and I'm right-handed, and I'm a pitcher, and I lower my shoulder to this guy, right in my shoulder, and it's just like, and I'm like, but there's girls around, I'm fine, I'm totally fine, but my shoulder just could not, it wouldn't move, and it hurt like the dickens. But I just played it off, you know, just kind of held my arm close to my body and, and everything. But anyways, we're walking the car later, and uh, Amanda, who caused this incident, it's all her fault, um, <laughs> uh, she, I, as we're going to the car, I'm like, hey, do you have any Advil? Happen to have any Advil <laughs> or anything? So she gives me Advil, whatever. So then I'm in a sling. I have an MRI, all this stuff. end up having a, a sprained AC joint in my shoulder and, and uh, a little tear in my rotator cuff. Again, I play baseball on a pitch. And so that was in the fall. And then what happened next is just a bunch of crazy stories. You could say all those things are happen saints, but I just happened to go on a mission trip that summer. I happened to work with orphans that summer. I got to spend a lot of time with orphans, and God started putting orphans on my heart. My wife just happened to go to a mission trip that summer, or my wife now, this, this girl that I just met. And so we start sharing pictures. We get to know each other more. Amanda's, Amanda's mom has cancer that year. I think that connects us on another spiritual level that year. All these things are just from the outside in. You might look at that and you say, random, as just luck would have it, these things happen. No, if you look back over your life, you see what our first point is in your notes. If you have your, have your notes in front of you, nothing happens by chance. There's nothing that happens by chance. Everything happens under the sovereign hand of God. Everything happens for a reason. Now, in the moment, you don't see it. I mean, how could Naomi see how God was working in her life when she just lost her husband and two sons? And Ruth is now just with this, she's a Moabitess living in a foreign land among the Israelites. And she's probably looking at all those people. She stands out and she's going like, I don't fit in here. All of it is under the hand of the Lord. But you might be saying, but what about this job loss or cancer diagnosis or the the surprise child? My brother, man, he was 40 and then all of a sudden, hey, you're going to have a child again. (laughs) He's still getting over that, I think. (laughs) Their child is like four now. No, he's like two or something. Um, but you know whether it's a surprise child or or whatever those those circumstances in your life you're going is God really involved in all these things you see all these events are not catching God off guard you can't catch God off guard so that he has to respond and constantly uh, respond to the decisions of people I mean listen you are here today because of the Lord and so the, the author is saying about Ruth and she's saying this the same God who caused the famine later provided food and brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem right at the, it just happened to be at harvest time. And now to the field that just so happens to be Boaz's, who we're going to see in a second, just happens to be a relative who can potentially take care of Naomi and Ruth. It's not luck. It's not happenstance. God is working through this entire situation. Nothing is catching him off guard. Don't miss this. God isn't just working in the miraculous. You know, the the healings and the parting of the Red Sea in the small details, the small decisions of your life, all of those things. God is at work and and he's doing this work and ultimately it fits within his plan of redemption. 
He's doing these things, and we don't have to miss these things. He's always at work. And now what we pick up here as she goes and just happens in verse 3 to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Look at verse 4. We're introduced to Boaz. So chapter, chapter 2, verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I mean, <laughs> I think that's neat. It's like, like if your boss walked around and was like, the Lord be with you today. Next cubicle. <laughs> the Lord be with you today. And then to the next cubicle, the Lord be with you. And so here this landowner comes, this, as it, he's described here, even as we see in the very, a worthy man in verse 1. Here comes Boaz to his field with all these workers, all these people under him. He's the boss. He owns all of this. And he's like, the Lord be with you. And they all respond to him. It's, it's really remarkable how they even respond. The Lord bless you. Verse 5. I think it speaks already a lot to Boaz's character before we even see anything else about him. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young wo- man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now, I know it's easy to think of this as like a romantic novel, and he's just struck by her beauty. I think it's more of she's a Moabite, and she stands out. She looks different. It's not just like, I mean, oh, man, who is this woman out there? Like, don't read that into the text here. He's just noticed somebody different, and he's going, who is this? And he said to the reapers, uh, or sorry, verse 6, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young, again, Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please, and so he's still talking for her, saying, here's what she said to me. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young ma- the men not to touch you? I mean, here he's already, I mean, again, reminder, this is in the book of Judges. This is right around the scene of the Judges. I mean, evil in the sight of, I mean, in the sight of the Lord. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And here, this is all going on. So naturally, these women would be potentially abused. Um, and here he's saying, listen, have I not charged the men? Do not touch these women. He is a good leader and a good man over his people. And he says, have I not charged your young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. I mean, this is remarkable too. Again, we don't pick up on this in our culture, but again, who would, you know who would fill those jars? Not the young men. I mean, it would have been the, it would have been the foreigner or it would have been a female who filled those jars. And she's the one who's going to drink from their jars that they have filled. I mean, he's showing an extraordinary amount of care and favor to her. And then he goes on, he says, uh, what the, uh, then verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that, no, no, this is incredible two verses here. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Again, Yahweh, the Lord, repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice this, under whose wings, look at this, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Because remember, back in chapter one, she says, 
your God will be my God. I'm leaving the God of God Kamash or the other gods of Moab, and I'm coming under your God. I submit to him. I'm putting my faith in you and your God. I'm going to go under you. And he's saying, here's what you're doing. You're, and this is, a, this is a thing we see in Scripture throughout, especially the Psalms. This is strong language from the Israelites. They would see that as coming under the, the care and love of God, under his wings, his mighty wings, and the, the safe, the refuge, the tower that we see over and over again in the Psalms. And here he's saying, you have taken refuge there. Then she said, I have found favor, verse 13. I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And he continues. I mean, he's showing favor to her. He's saying, like, listen, I will protect you. I will make sure that they do not harm you. Here, get water when you need it. Go to the one that young men have, have filled these jars. Go there. And at mealtime, it continues, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her, notice this, this is, this is like what you do with your kids and those kind of things. It's like, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. It's like, listen, when you've harvested, just kind of like drop a little bit here, leave a little bit there on the field so that she can come behind you and just grab it up easily. I mean, he is going, he's going beyond what the law has said. I mean, again, remember, God has already spoken. You're to take care of these people. You're to, God's heart is for the oppressed. God's heart is for the widow. God's heart is for the poor. But Boaz is saying, I hear that, and I'm going more levels. And not just, again, don't see this as attraction. We see nothing about attraction in chapter 2 at all. There's nothing there. He, we, we actually don't see, and we're going to see in a second, we don't see any interaction between the two of them over the six to seven weeks that, that she's going to be gleaning in those fields. All we get is this interaction with them, and then what we're going to see at the threshing floor in chapter 3 next week. He's just being overly kind to a Moabite, an outsider. And I think this says a lot to us about his character. And, and, and really, I think this is sad, though. This is also sad because a lot of men are not like Boaz. Either they're usually, a lot of men are overly passive, so just kind of sit around and watch as, as mom takes care of everything or sit around. I remember when I went to Haiti uh, to visit there and, and work with an orphanage there, and I was just, I was just saddened. It was the, the, the people there, I mean, it was watching, and it was, I mean, I, I literally came across this boy, his name was Lili, Lili Dassam, he was this, he was like probably this tall, but he actually had a, a, a disease or, or something that affected his growth, and he was actually older than I thought he was, but I remember watching him come on the field, I mean, he's this little boy, he has got his hands, his hands looked, they probably looked more worn than my hands do today, and he had been out in the fields working for this woman who had owned this land. And had all this land, and we just happened to be staying in her home. She wasn't a believer. She just was someone that opened up her home for us in that town while we were visiting. And we stayed with her. And I remember I meet him, this boy, and I come to him, and I'm, my heart is just broken over him. Because I'm watching him. I meet him on this field, and he just, he looks tired. And I'm like, he looks like he's nine. He's like old as, as old as my middle son, Levi. And here he is, he's worked in the field. And then you watch and you see all the women working. You know what I would see? I'd see these men over in the corner playing dominoes. And then I'd go around another corner and see more men just sitting around. You're like, what are you guys doing? Why aren't you working? 
It was remarkable to me. But listen, I, I've seen this. I've seen, I've, I mean, I've been in church my whole life, been serving in, in, in church pastoral work for 15 years. And I can tell you, most of the time, who are stepping up to serve and, and give? Who is the ones uh, helping with, like, a ministry like Love Life that it's usually girls out there standing helping with, uh, with, with preg- crisis pregnancy. You don't, you don't really see men out there very much. Or when I would teach parenting conferences at Calvary where I just came from, you know who would show up in majority at those parenting conferences? Women. The men wouldn't be there. You're like, where, where are the men? Where are we? Why, why aren't we stepping up like Boaz and saying, listen, let me care for the, the marginalized. Let me step up and help them. And I say this not from a, a high and lofty place. I say in my own heart, am I, I, I find myself being passive sometimes. And then the other extreme is being abusive. Men who are overly abusive or passive. You don't see someone a lot of times like Boaz. Boaz is high in character. And he's following what God had, uh, had called and commanded them to do. And this is your second point. I'm going to move quickly to our third as well. As a follower of Jesus, we are called to care for the needy. This is a call and it's a command in Scripture. I've already really covered this earlier in the message, but this is what we see in, the, in Boaz. He's taking it the extra. The, he's not just going by the, the letter of the law. He's taking the Spirit and going beyond it. He's saying, I'm going I'm to bless this woman and this family because I, I have compassion for them. I'm watching as she is, she's left everything to go with Naomi. I'm going to care for this person. Have to the field, and he gives her extra. We see this. Look at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. I mean, again, you're like, what in the world does that mean? I have no idea. That is about 30 to 50 pounds of barley. 30 to 50 pounds. She has got, like, those guys kept leaving stuff, I guess. I mean, they just kept dropping it. I mean, they're just like, all right, sweet. He told us to. They just start leaving all this stuff behind, and she just keeps gathering. She's 30 to 50 pounds of barley, not just a little bit of scraps from the, as a sojourner would get or a widow or a poor person would get. She's left everything. And, and, and here they're generous. So that, look, I think the question for us is how generous are we? Do we have a generous heart where we see a need, we meet it? Where we say, like, this is God's heart. He cares for the widow. He cares for the orphan. Am I doing what I can with the resources God has given me to care for others? We see Boaz remarkably in this. I mean, it outlines throughout Scripture how they were to function. And so what we get here is a person who is lavishing care and taking the initiative to meet the needs of the poor. And that's the same as us. If we're a follower of Jesus, we are called to care for the needy. But I want us to notice this last, this last point I have in your notes, and I think this is important to see. We're going to really focus on this next week and through the rest of the series or the next two weeks, is this. Is like Ruth and Naomi, we need a redeemer. You see, what we're finding out is this. What, look what happens. Verse 17. So <laughs> I can't imagine. I don't even know how Ruth carried 30 to 50 pounds of maybe, maybe, maybe Boaz said, hey, let me send you some servants to help you. I don't know. He very likely could have because of his personality, it seems. But here she's walking down the road with this, all this, those, this, I mean, she's just hoping to get enough food to eat maybe for another day or two or a week and to continue to just have more food for her and Naomi. And so verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? See, again, Ruth has no idea who this Boaz guy is. 
She's just glad she found someone who would show favor. And then it says this, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today. I love how the author's doing this. He's like, I'm going to get every word out of this phrase and I'm going to leave the last word be the guy that she's going to be like, Boaz? The light's going to come on. So he says, the man you have worked with today is Boaz. Verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man, wait, the man's a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until you have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman, women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What we're seeing is a little bit of a foreshadow of what we're really going to see in chapter 3. I mean, chap- yeah, in chapter 3. That Boaz has the potential to be a redeemer for this couple. Remember, when the, back in chapter 1, they seemed utterly hopeless and without a future. They don't see it like Jeremiah tells us. They didn't see a future and a hope. They saw themselves as hopeless. And what they needed was exactly what God was providing for them in Boaz, a redeemer. But here's the great reality. There's a greater Boaz, Jesus Christ, the ultimate redeemer, who's going to redeem a people for himself. He's going to purchase their freedom. He's going to pay the price for their sin. This is the gospel, the good news that Jesus, who says, listen, I will lavish myself on you, the outsider like Moab, the one who is an outsider of the covenant who doesn't fit, doesn't belong, who is hopeless and without a future, Christ comes and he says, I'll take the punishment for your sin for you. I will go to the cross to pay the price for your sin. This is the good news. This is the good news that Naomi's starting to get. You're taking from a depressed woman to all of a sudden a little bit of hope. This isn't a hope that that can be just manufactured. It's a hope because what we're going to see through this, even this Boaz character, is that's going to point us to Christ. Christ our redeemer this is exactly what we need we need redemption because he redeems us from the power from the penalty of sin you say you know i challenge you like hey we should be and have high character like boaz but guess what on your own you can't do that you need a redeemer you need christ to change you and to transform you to give you a heart that's generous that's kind that's compassionate this is what we need we need uh, we needed christ we need his salvation. We need his transforming grace to motivate us and move us to greater worship and greater affection and repentance of sin. Listen, have you put your trust in Christ? Have you put yourself under the mighty wings of God? Have you? Maybe you're like, you know, I've been trying to. Listen, it's not about effort. It is all of grace. The Bible tells us is by grace you've been saved through the the vehicle that you receive the grace of God is through faith, putting your faith in Christ alone for salvation of your soul. It is all of Christ. Listen, we live in a broken world, and maybe for some, you know, we've tried to fix our brokenness by pursuing the things of this world. Maybe maybe it's a career, and we've tried to find a satisfaction in having wealth and accumulating more. Maybe you found it, tried to find it in relationships, 
or in other ways of just trying to pacify the brokenness in your life. Listen, this is why Christ came. The Redeemer came to bring you out of the brokenness and into his kingdom. He takes you and brings you as a son. I just read this in Galatians. I love the picture of adoption, of God adopting us into his family, where we cry out, Abba, Father. We can call out to him. This is what Ruth and Naomi needed in this life. They're like, we need a redeemer. This is what Boaz can be for us, potentially. But they needed a greater redeemer. They needed Christ, just like we need as well. So I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes with me, just for a few moments. The the worship team's going to come and lead us in one last song, but I just want to challenge you challenge you today. And remind you that we need a redeemer. We're not good enough. We could never be good enough. You can try to be like Boaz and you can maybe even look the part, but you need his righteousness. We sang that earlier. My righteousness, oh God, I need you. We need his righteousness. So maybe some of you, you've been putting your faith in other things in this world. Maybe you've been putting your faith in your goodness, your own goodness. Maybe you've been putting your faith in the security of a job and the, uh, the identity that that brings to you, the sense of satisfaction that that brings to you. Maybe you're sitting there and you're going, man, my life's been hard, it's been tough. I don't see much of a good future in front of me. I, all I see is brokenness. Man, would you see that you have a greater Boaz who is waiting? To, he's already done the work of saving you. All you have to do is respond to it. Receive it by faith. Put your trust in him. Call out to him and say, God, I need you. Like we sang earlier, I need you. I need you to save my soul. Maybe put today, put your faith in Christ. Maybe a lot of you, and I assume a lot of you, have done that. Let me ask you, are you living generously? Are you taking care of the poor? Are you paying attention to the needs of others around you? Or are we just living this life selfishly? Father, forgive us for that. So I'm going to pray now. God, help us, Father. Help us. We do need you. Help us to see that we need you. Help us to live wholly devoted to you. God, we thank you for your love, your grace, your redemption that you bring through Christ. Thank you for this really neat story, Ruth. Just watching as you don't just happen to be, end up at this field or happen to come back to Bethlehem. God, you are at work in our lives and in their lives and in our lives as well. And help us to see your work in our lives. Help us to rely on you. Help us to live wholly devoted to you. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask your help in all these things. Help us to live for you and for your glory this week. We ask it in your son's name.